Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hello, hell, do you read me? Hello, hell, do you read me? Do you read me, hell? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is an epic science fiction psychedelic trip. Directed by Stanley Kubrick. Cast includes Monrovius Tucker, Solomon Trashworth, Dennis Humbucker, Rundiger Jones, Cochise Price, and Virgil Bunzinski. I watched this movie on HBO Max. Joey, how did you watch it? I did not watch it on HBO Max. I watched it on Max, the place you go for HBO. <laughs> whatever it's fucking called. <laughs> I think the first time I watched this movie, it was on HBO Max. But yeah, you're right. On the rewatch, definitely a completely different streaming service called Max. It's brand new. Really makes you forget about any sort of minimum level experiences you may have had or mid-level experiences you may have had on other streaming services with these. I mean, this content. one is, this player, it was easier to use, I think, than HBO Max's. So whatever they're doing there. So somebody at the Max headquarters has uh, at some point downloaded and used the app and realized that they needed to change it for the better. So um, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Well, I'm happy to hear that you're happy. I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm happy to be a part of these, uh, really, these, these really productive conversations about what it's called. Uh, you know, I love <laughs> talking about that every There's time. There's nothing that I love more up. than talking about what things are called. Yeah. So you know, that's true. We're all happy. <laughs> all right. Well, before we discuss 2001 A Space Odyssey and analyze it in detail, we're going to recap the events in the synopsis that Joey wrote. Joey, take it away. At first, there was nothing. Then there was Stanley Kubrick and the celestial bodies, the sun, the earth, and the moon all align, signaling a significant event for the universe. On earth, a new type of life forms. There are small apes that travel in packs that compete with other animals and other tribes of apes on the barren surface. One day, while one group is asleep, an ominous black rectangle with perfect dimensions appears on the planet's surface. The monolith. The apes investigate it cautiously. Soon, the apes start using bones to crush other bones. After seeing how effective these new tools are as weapons, they kill the competing species and other tribes of apes. They are eating lots and lots of meat now. Fast forward four million years and humans are exploring space. We meet Dr. Haywood Floyd on his way to the Clavis base on the moon. On the way to the moon, Dr. Floyd drinks from a tray of flavored goop. At Clavis, Dr. Floyd meets with a board of people with high clearance to emphasize the importance of secrecy. The base has found an ominous structure buried on the lunar surface. On their way in the moon shuttle, the crew enjoys some sandwiches. They attempt to excavate it, believing it was a sublunar structure. As the team of astronauts walk out to investigate it, the monolith looms large. A harsh, high-pitched buzzing penetrates their helmets, incapacitating the team. Eighteen months later, the spaceship Discovery One is traveling to Jupiter. On board are five humans, Dr. David Bowman, 
Dr. Frank Poole, and three others who are in cryogenic hibernation, and one super-intelligent AI named HAL 9000. All of the ship's systems are controlled by HAL, including the life support systems for the sleeping crew. The astronauts exercise, participate in interviews on Earth, and eat space food while they wait to arrive at Jupiter. HAL indicates something is wrong with their communication sensor, but when Bowman and Poole bring in the device, they can't find anything wrong. They consult with Mission Control, who indicates their twin AI system has made a mistake, and to proceed with caution. Hal assures his crew members that the 9000 series is incapable of error. Bowman and Poole hide from Hal and discuss how they should deal with him. They decide to wait and see if the sensor will fail like Hal predicted and disconnect him if he is wrong. Despite their efforts, Hal is able to figure out the human's plan and sets in motion a plot to kill everyone on board. While on an EVA, Hal disconnects Poole's oxygen, sending him spinning into space. While Bowman goes out to recover him, Hal sabotages the life support systems for the hibernating crew, killing them in their sleep. He then locks Bowman out of the ship. Bowman is forced to brave the vacuum of space and enters through the emergency airlock. Once inside, he disables Hal as the computer begs for its life. Soon afterward, Bowman encounters a monolith monolith. floating through space. He is drawn toward it and sucked into a kaleidoscopic gateway. At the other end, he is in a series of strangely decorated rooms, all alone. He watches himself grow older and older, but at least he is eating real food. Eventually, he expires of old age while the monolith monolith. looms over him. He is transformed into a fetus and brought back to Earth where he can observe the planet from space. The... There you have it. The events of 2001, A Space Odyssey. We'll begin our analysis with our pros and our cons. Joey, what did you like about this film? This is an awe-inspiring film. Some of the most breathtaking special effects and visual effects just ever put on on camera. It lives up to the Odyssey part of it. Um, That was part of the inspiration. There's many inspirations for this movie, but one of them is the uh, Odyssey by Homer, and it definitely lives up to that. Uh, truly feels epic in scope. Uh, the sound design is truly fantastic. Um, and Hal, <laughs> Hal is awesome. Hal is great. Uh, for the, the sound design, no other movie I've watched bothers my dog as much as this movie does. <laughs> um, both times that I've watched it, he, like, whenever the, the alarms start going off or, or like, anything like that, anything, or any sort of distressing noise, he gets up and starts wandering around trying to figure out what's going on. No other movie that has, like, you know, fighting or, like, you know, tense music or anything does... He doesn't seem to register at all. It's only this movie that like somehow is triggering some sort of animal nature <laughs> inside of my pets. They're crazy. Does he get riled up when the apes are start howling at each other? At no, the no, no, he doesn't. But uh, I do. Yeah, I, mean, I start getting up and howling and stamping my start foot. Start beating stuff. Yeah. <laughs> start using your phone as a, as like a bludgeon. Right. Doom, Tossing doom. things up into the air and hoping for yeah, yeah. a really great cut to Notch it being cut. a spaceship. <laughs> Uh, I, I agree with all the stuff that you just said as far as uh, what you liked in this film. I think this movie has brave use of a limited dialogue. The visuals and music take center stage. You're really kind of experiencing that kind of thing. Some of the most iconic use of cinematic music of all time. I this is this year is my first time watching 2001: A Space Odyssey. Uh, you know, I watched it for the first time earlier this year, and then for the second time for this podcast. And 
it's crazy how much the music from this film is used in every other film yes. <laughs> that has come after this. And it's, it's like almost trite to say that, but you have to give it credit for where it came from. It's, it's epic. Like you said, I like to describe things as being epic. This is def- This is no exception. This is truly epic. Not even low key epic. This is full like on epic. Key. Yes. Full on. No caveats. Epic. That's right. Just straight epic. And it's vague in a way that is intended to allow the viewer to interpret it in multiple ways. I think that's really fun. It's great for a podcast like this, so we can talk about what we uh, saw in it. I honestly think it can be different depending on each time you watch it. I felt different (laughs) coming away from it this time than I did earlier this year. And like you said, the special effects are incredible, and and a lot of them still hold up. So that's what we liked. Let's talk about what we didn't like. What are your cons for 2001 A Space Odyssey? Uh, the future is very white. <laughs> a lot of white people. <laughs> uh, I thought you, were, running, I thought you meant music. like the inside of the like smooth. Oh, that too. Like, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of clean white surfaces and clean white faces for sure. Um, I think this movie is kind of inaccessible to most audiences. Probably I would say modern audiences. It's very slow. It's It's very, very slow. Both times I've watched it, I fell asleep. Um, <laughs> I, I wish that like the end part of the movie, where uh, like the last stage of humanity's evolution through these like stages of like technological growth, was a little bit more like there was a little bit more of a commitment from Kubrick and and uh, Arthur C. Clarke about what that would look like. Right? This is a it's very metaphorical. It's very vague. It's like oh, we'll transcend our bodies, or like we'll be um you know uh, communicating directly with extraterrestrials very unclear about what they're talking about here like are is this all happening in bowman's head like what is the nature of this relationship that he has with the extraterrestrials right is there any sort of dialogue or communication between them what does it mean for the rest of humanity right we don't see we see how the world is transformed by based on technology that was available in 1968 when this movie came out but we don't get to see how it is transformed in the next stage of humanity. And I would have liked something that was a little more concrete so that we could say, ha, Stanley Kubrick, you're wrong about things. But um, th- that's not re- the real reason. But I, I, th- I just think it's better if you have something that's a little more, uh, you know, solid there. Um, any- uh, anyway, what is a monolith? Anyway, what, you know, what, what do we do with monoliths? Who knows what they are? Uh, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's what I have to say about it. What about you? I agree that the vagueness kind of cuts both ways. It's cool because you give yourself something to chew on and decide what you think it is, but you also miss out on the catharsis of a movie having a really uh, resonant message. It's just like a tight rope to walk, you know? Right. I think I agree with you, like, because I think there's there's vagary throughout the whole movie. All three sections before the last section are all very vague about, like, what are we talking about here? What's the, what, why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we focusing on this? And I think there's a lot of different interpretations for that, which I think make, it makes it very interesting. The last part though, it's so, <laughs> it's so abstract that you're just, you, you really don't have much to grasp right, onto, right. right? It's that third act problem, right? Where it's like, okay, well you're locked in now, you know, you've already spent <laughs> two hours watching this movie. You're going to, you're going to walk out now. Um, so I, I, um, I, I just wish there was a little bit more of that, you know, cause I do think the other parts are, are, vague but solid enough that i feel like they're, they're something that i can uh, uh clench my teeth into bite into well you're supposed to bite into an acid tab and 
trip while you're watching the third act. I think that's the I message see. they're trying to get across. I thought you were going to say bite into one of those um, juice boxes that come in a tray <laughs> that you had to lift up awkwardly to drink out of. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, this is our future. <laughs> Why aren't those module like modular? Why can't you just pull them out? Like, what, <laughs> what happens if there's a leak in one? You get like you get a whole mess there. Yeah. Why isn't the artwork anyway. on the box better? <laughs> Why aren't we using words? um yeah i uh i guess for my cons i think that as much as this movie does hold up there are some space special effects that kind of look goofy and it just it's not perfect i think that practical effects go a long way but there were sequences of it where i was like okay this is no longer interesting to me i get it we're in space and i i also think just in general some of the sequences drag and go on for too long. And maybe that's the TikTokification of my mind uh, that I can't handle watching no dialogue and a, a spaceship slowly moving across the screen. But I need subway surfers. I need, I need kinetic sand happening yes. in the corners here. Yes. Yeah. I, I bring that up, though, kind of to reject that as uh, an answer to this criticism. I, I just think it does sometimes go on a really long time and uh, that can get boring. Definitely. So those are our pros and our cons. Let's move on to our overall section uh, and dive deep into this film. And Joey, you can get us started. Um, earlier this year, we watched a ton of very epic movies, very incredible movies, very well-known movies. And I think this one is certainly earned its spot in history. Um, I, I It was 1991. It was instituted into the United States Library of Congress for preservation for the National Film Registry. I always think of that as like some one of the highest honors that a film can get, and I think this one uh, deserves it, for sure. After nearly three minutes of completely black screen, we finally see a, sh- a shot of the sun behind the earth and the earth behind the moon, and immediately I just said, wow. It's so amazing. It's breathtaking. And it's all fake, you know, like this is like, you know, these are just visual effects that are here, but just the alignment of the spheres in this way is so incredible. It just moves you. And that's when you know that this movie is, is doing something a little bit different than you might expect when it's talking about the future or about um, science fiction, right? It's way more about the feeling. It's way more about a meditation on uh, human evolution and what we have to, you know, it has a lot to live up to in that regard, but it's talking about just so much, it has just such a grand scope, and that scope is covered entirely in, like, emotional cues, not so much in, like, these dialogue moments. It's meant to be sat through, to be absorbed inside of, to just be experienced all over, and the the more that you can, you know, limit your external um stimuli the more like the, if you sit in a dark room and just watch this movie i feel like it's such a transformative experience because you're so engrossed in this really strange story about humans gen- venturing into the unknown um yeah this movie has a lot to live up to and i feel like it starts really really strong when it starts with like this is stanley kubrick's film this is 2001 a space odyssey and you're like this is the movie this is the one about about the future. This is the one about human evolution. This is one about technology. Uh, this, this is the only movie you need to watch about any of those things. Um, I've never seen the whole thing from beginning to end uh, in one sitting uh, until uh, we watched it earlier this year and then for, obviously for this podcast. But in the past, it's always bothered me how slow it is. 
It takes forever for anyone to talk. The action on screen isn't particularly exciting. Even though the movie is really four different stories, it doesn't take long to tell you everything that happens in each one. It's not got a particularly complex plot or story structure, and it is honestly super vague. Um, Even the parts that contain dialogue and plot contain huge holes of explanation. What does the monolith does the monolith plant the idea of the tool in the monkey's brain, or was that more like an indirect inspiration? You know, is this a metaphor or is this literal? Right? It was it tools or weapons that started the journey toward civilization? Right? Feels like we're conflating tools and weapons. That's the sort of thing that's very popular to talk about, especially when you're talking about AI. Is like, is this a tool? Is this a weapon? Right? Um, and I think that. That's just, that's sort of a spectrum that you have to kind of grapple with here. So, you know, what is this movie saying about tools versus weapons? I don't know. I don't know if it's coming down very hard on one end or the other. Um, what about Hal? Why does he malfunction exactly? And why was he the only one trusted enough to carry the details of the mission? They send five humans, um, but none of them seem to know what's going on. I guess it's it sort of implied that the uh, hibernating ones do know what's going on. Um, and that, that right, they've been trained elsewhere, right, and yeah. put on the ship pre-hibernation, right? So, so they were they were never got a chance to interact directly with the with uh, Bowman and Poole, right? So it's possible that they know something that we can just never find out. But uh, how is the only is our backup plan? How is the guy that's supposed to tell us, you know, uh, what's going on? And if something does go wrong, he's the only one that can carry on the mission. Um. Yeah, and honestly, the, four, the whole fourth act, like I've mentioned, is, is just a huge uh, question mark. I think these are good questions. I think these are important things to talk about. I think they're fun to talk about. But I think the only thing that really matters when it comes to this movie is what it feels like to watch it. It's captivating watching the advance of your own species. It's so, it's so like, heady. Uh, I'm watching, sitting there watching these guys, and I'm like, is this really what it was like? Is, is this what it was like for my distant distant ancestors right you know the the fact that we are alive today that you as a person exist is statistically very very unlikely right because (laughs) of the amount of the way that like you know um conception works right because of the the many different plagues and catastrophes that have struck this uh planet and this species over the uh, millennia that we've been around right the advance of agriculture and other medicine to boost the human population the industrial revolution right the fact that you're alive today is very very significant and what it also means is that you have an unbroken line of ancestors that goes backward through time to some proto-human somebody who's messing with tools back in the caveman days or even before that which is crazy to think about so even if it didn't happen exactly this way right this is a plausible enough explanation for you to start and it takes so long for it to kind of get to its conclusion that you're just sitting there waiting and thinking about what it must have been like for these people and it's so crazy to think about because it's i i think that it's like it's really mind-bending it's the the progress of technology is such a bizarre one because if you look through time it takes us a long time to make any sort of significant change but once that change happens stuff kind of explodes there's a technological like acceleration you know what I mean? The time between uh, like horse and buggies and cars and then like cars and like self-driving cars 
is significantly like shrunk, right? And this idea of like, you know, telecommunications or um, the internet, right? This completely changed our society to the point where um, our parents lived vastly different lives than we do which has never been the case in human history, right? Our grandparents and our great-grandparents lived very similar lives and their great and you know their grandparents <laughs> lived very similar lives, but that's not true anymore. And and it's almost impossible to recognize what our kids our world is going to be looking like. And that's largely because our technology is advancing at a speed that we can't really seem to keep up with. And so uh, this like exploration of like okay we started with this tool now we have moved into the spacefaring age and what's next it's right around the corner whatever it is you know we're not spending a lot of time here because we're gonna already it's not gonna take us four million years to make to the next evolutionary leap we're already on our way um right the the amount of time between each monolith keeps shrinking right, right? it's monolith one then four million years and then at like one monolith two and then 18 months and then monolith three and kind of imperceivable amount of time but it, it almost seems like time has accelerated in a in a way that's like beyond our perception yes. it's like this this guy ages his entire life in a matter of moments and that's you know whatever you want to take from that but that's the next evolution it's going to be that much faster exactly um when we are jumping past the present into the into this future that you know, won't happen, right? 2001 is 22 years ago. <laughs> but um, I, I think that this movie, despite its haunting, ominous tone, is extremely optimistic. A unified world traveling together through space, expanding the frontier of the unknown and discovering secrets long buried for us to find. So much attention and time is spent on the mundane, eating, meeting, talking, moving, it all happens in an environment built for us using tools generations of humans have spent their lives designing. And it's not just showing off all the cool stuff that Kubrick has built for this movie. It's daring to say, what if? What if we got it all right and we chased after our destiny in the stars? What would it feel like to live in a world where humanity's star was rising? And even though there are problems and there are setbacks and mysteries and <laughs> homicidal computers, nothing will stop us from figuring out what, like, figuring all of that out and advancing to the next stage of our evolution. I think this movie is so rich with emotion and passion and hope. I found myself just lifted by the wave of possibility. And like a lot of other great science fiction, it made me feel small, but also really important. It makes me want to fight for the future like the one in 2001. I think in 1968, right, we were very uh, optimistic about the future, right? This is during the space race. We had just ended uh, World War II a few decades earlier, right? We were like, we're, we're on a path of progress. And today, it feels hard to recognize that progress. It feels like we're slipping into some sort of age of barbarism with uh, you know, peasant mindset, uh, which, is, which might be true. But, it's, but I think that we have to... Uh, have faith that we might just figure this out. There was a time when we were very optimistic about the future, where we thought that we were, there was nothing that could stop us, you know? And although now it feels like that dream is further away than it's ever been, it feels like we could still get back to that. And it's important to have stories like this, ones that have hope at the center of them, or at least that's my interpretation, because I think it speaks to, um, the possibility of things, but also of this 
kind of naivety that is at the heart of humanity, right? We, there's this, uh, I, I always say this, uh, success is ignorance plus confidence, right? He, the, the fact that we believe that this is possible and that it might be possible and all the technology that is shown in this movie is real, right? It, it's, it's something that you could do makes it um, feel like it's so much worth, you know, so much within our grasp and there's so much that's just waiting for us to find. And who knows what's out there behind Jupiter, right? But um, I don't want to ever lose sight of that, right? I don't ever want to let despair seep in too far. And even if everything is blown up, it's like, it's worth hoping that the future will be better. So um, yeah, I, I think this movie is transcendent. It's, it's, it's something that I think everyone should think about or, or experience is this kind of level of hope and, and recognize that just even though this happened a long, even this movie was made a long time ago, those things are still possible and that, that hope is still alive for a lot of people. And it, makes, it made me feel very deeply. I, it kept me captivated and wondering the whole time. And did, it, did that almost entirely by, just by showing me incredible things and connecting them in this path for, this, for the entire human race. Um, I describe this movie as spectacular, wonderful, awe-inspiring. It's certainly pro-human, you know, depending on what you want to interpret the monoliths as. Maybe it's, uh, you know, something sent from the divine. Maybe it's extraterrestrials who are far more advanced than us, kind of reaching back down the ladder and trying to hoist us up. Or maybe it's just a metaphor and humanity has greatness uh, as like an intangible aspect of it where we're just bound to continue to evolve and uh, become, reinvent ourselves and evolve as time goes on. And uh, whatever you decide that that means, I think any of those are really you know, hopeful Definitely. and something that can motivate you and, and look at all of time and be like, we're doing pretty good and we're on our way. <laughs> Even if the certain, like the present moment, you, you know, might not look at that way. You know, going back to that uh, first portion of the movie, I loved the, the apes, you know, it's, it's really, really brave to start your movie with 26 minutes of no dialogue and just let it be nature like it felt like watching national geographic it was so primal so understandable you know i'd never met these apes before <laughs> um, but i i could i got what they were on about pretty quickly uh you know i i thought about this idea for a reboot or spin-off we would do 2001 ape origins, ape origins. maybe a go. limited series on max there you go uh you know and <laughs> this is the story of the ape tribe just after the invention of the first tool we watched them go on to invent fire the wheel language and finally multi-level marketing companies <laughs> then we watched the apes scam each other back to the stone age once their entire society has collapsed and the dust has settled we see the black monolith towering above some apes that were cowering under some rocks they freak out and begin to touch the monolith. Then we realize that this movie wasn't a sequel, but it was a prequel and ends at the beginning of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Ah, uh, very good. <laughs> they, we've done this before. <laughs> See, more evidence that humanity is chosen because even when we branch off in the wrong direction, we circle back there you go. and then try again, right? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the spirit of humanity is in invincible, but... Um, but yeah, I, but more seriously, I did think that this was a really captivating, uh, part of the film, this concept 
that an idea as simple as using an object as a tool could start a sequence of evolution that eventually results in commercial interplanetary travel. Uh, it's, it's really mind-blowing stuff, like we've been saying. Um, I will say that the first time I watched this movie, I felt those 26 minutes. I kept waiting for there to be a dialogue. Not knowing what this movie had in it, I was wondering if I was never going to hear anyone say anything ever. And the <laughs> second I time deaf? I watched it... <laughs> Right, yeah. But have I gone deaf only if I, to If words? I don't hear anyone talk for 26 minutes, will I forget how to speak? <laughs> but this time that I watched it, I didn't feel as long or as, as, I don't know, I guess that's just when you rewatch something, but it didn't feel as noticeable. It, it made perfect sense, honestly, right. uh, knowing what I was watching. You know, the classical music in this movie reminds me of watching ballet. Uh, you ever gone to see a ballet, Joey? I have seen a ballet, yes. What do you think? You a big ballet guy? Uh, I'm congr- <laughs> I am contractually obligated to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, then I'm sure uh, you're familiar with how long ballets are and how a lot of times, you know, there's not all that much to grab onto as far as like uh, understandable plot so my favorite component of ballets have puppets at the center of them ah yes uh well that's really what we show up for ballet for is the the master puppet uh handler <laughs> at the center of it all uh but <laughs> john malkovich aside i've gone and seen ballets and uh this movie kind of reminded me of that because this movie c- kind of feels like a dance it's got an overture it's got an intermission Especially the sequence where the stewardess is bringing the the amazing quality food to the pilots as Dr. Floyd is approaching the moon. You, there was almost this, uh, you know, hypnotic quality uh, to the the sequence. You're listening to this great orchestral music. And that's another thing. I've gone to see orchestras play. And I think it's beautiful. I really do try to appreciate it. But it's just so boring there's nothing to look at again not to be a total tiktok brain but there's i i can only enjoy it so deeply before my mind starts to wander and one of the things i think is cool about this this movie is you have an opportunity to appreciate those things but it also gives you something to to look at while you enjoy it that doesn't distract you from it in fact it totally enhances it yeah uh, it's the, the like basic routines of what these people are doing set to epic like orchestral music gives them this grand eloquence to them um even though it's like just kind of a normal job for these people it, it, that you know putting those next to each other and saying like this is sort of our routine now and then saying look at this i mean this is crazy right like it, it's it's being a, it's that kind of glimpse into the future that I think Kubrick is is looking for, right? Where you can look, you know, you can look through a telescope and see the past. You can look at Stanley Kubrick's films and see the future. Like this is just a normal day, and and but I, you know, Stanley Kubrick and the people watching this movie know how monumental it is that this is normal, right? We've gotten so far that we can make even this, like we can make this like part of our just normal human routine, and it um. And that's like something to celebrate. That's something really uh, special. I think that if you wanted to, you could have made a similar sequence about commercial airline travel as it exists today. 
right, right? and kind of show right. the same brilliance of the future. It's mundane to the people look actually how, yeah, enjoying look, it. Look how efficient it is, right? Look how, look how many people we're able to get through here. And, and look, everyone can be entertained on their little televisions and all that. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the part where they have the rotating space station and the incoming ship matches its rotation speed. Oh, dude. So amazing. <laughs> docking. <laughs> Gotta love docking. I, yeah, I mean, have you ever seen docking this magnificent? But you could say the same, you could show the same thing when like an airplane is landing, how it's able to go from this great speed to just softly touching down and then coming to a stop. It's it's incredible. So um, it, yeah, it is, I think that's important to point out is how mundane and routine it is for the people doing it and how incredible it looks to us the onlookers who uh you know have never seen anything like this especially when you think about the fact that this movie came out when it did i don't know how much people in 1968 were thinking about i mean obviously they were thinking a lot about space because the space race was on but uh this must have made you know heads explode back then to see this kind of thing and how real it looks i mean there's so many hypnotic space sequences as ships are slowly floating through space and it really just allows you this movie it like lingers on those things and it allows you to enjoy the majesty of what you're witnessing it, because and it should because for the most part this movie looks great it kind of reminds me of watching avatar in the way that it takes time to just allow you to be in the wonderful world of the movie that you're watching the zero gravity pen still looks amazing <laughs> i know the first time i watched it i was like how did they do that and then i researched it and i was like oh they just taped it to a piece of glass so this time when i was watching it i was like get ready for this to be ruined but no it still looks amazing that's exactly what i was saying that's exactly <laughs> what i was thinking because like there's that moment when she picks it off of the glass right and yes. it's like that's like supposed to be like kind of a goof a little bit because it's like you can kind of tell that she's like picking it but She's like picking out of the air. It totally looks natural. It's, oh gosh, yeah. It's brilliant. Such a simple trick too, right? I mean, really. I'm more impressed now that I know how it's done because it doesn't look like that's how it's done. (laughs) Running laps around the inside of the ship was freaking cool, which again was like, so inspirational. Now we have Inception, you know, does the same kind of thing with the rotating (laughs) set. The, The way they played with gravity going on all these different directions you know, you combine with how cool it looks with the fact that it was made so long ago, the mo- the special effects in this movie are just absolutely insane. I know. And like, that's the thing. It's so amazing. I mean, it's so, I can, I'm just going to say amazing. It's like over and over it again. It does amaze though. It's, it's, it's amazed. I, I am amazed. Uh, you know, chalk me down as amazed. That's my <laughs> emotion for the day. I, um, the, just the, just how, how much it holds up in terms of visuals, right? Very few moments that feel janky or weird, right? Maybe like the pods seem kind of uh, clunky a little bit. Like, why would they design them this way? But ultimately, <laughs> like, they look great. They look like real things that you can sit in that go through space. The little arms move and everything. So, it, like, all of that is because everything was done in camera. Everything was done with actual models, miniatures, and maxatures and all that stuff right so it's it's very that's the reason why it looks so good and why it continues to look so good and why it's such a monumental film in my opinion is because it spent so much time trying to get it to look right and they made it look amazing i think movies today spend so much time you know doing all this cgi stuff trying to make everything look cool and this movie really lingers on all these things um and it makes you appreciate it's like 
you know, if you're Stanley Kubrick, you're like, I don't want to ever want to cut away from this stuff. You know, somebody right. spent, somebody spent a year <laughs> making this thing for me. I'm not going to cut away from this early, you know? And I think that's, that's to the movie's credit. I think it's a, uh, I think it, it adds so much because it makes it feel like you're actually there. It makes it feel like you're, this world is real because the longer it's on screen, the more it feels like it's, con- the more it can convince you it is. The, the long takes, uh, you know, witness the length of this spaceship. Yeah. It almost insists that you appreciate and marvel at it, which uh, right, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's, like, it's like daring. Yeah. You. It's like, look at the details. Look how much we put into this, you know, like this is not some sort of, you know, solid you know, piece of plastic or something, right? This is not some sort of janky computer polygon. This is an actual ship. Is it floating through space? Might as well be. Might as well be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of floating through space, this movie is definitely in part about man's relationship with technology. And I think this movie is saying that man's ability to advance technology uh, you know, it has some sort of transcendent quality, divinely inspired, uh, brought to us by aliens, comes from some emergent quality of uh, that only humanity can, like has. It's not one of those things. It's what sets us apart from the animals, and we have the ability to create such incredible things that we can even leave Earth. You know, one of the things that uh, we create or give birth to. You know, this movie does have a birthday motif, or at least you can even say just a birth motif, you know, the dawn of man, Dr. Floyd's daughter's birthday, Frank's parents sending him a happy birthday message, Dave being reborn in the end. Uh, You know, those things have to do with birth, but we also give birth to artificial intelligence. You know, you could look at that as saying almost that man giving birth to new life. And I think this movie is saying that we're not going to let AI destroy us. It's, it's not necessarily, you can maybe say it's a cautionary tale, but it's almost like uh, we, we're going to be, this will not be the end of us. Um, and instead, we reject our disastrous creation as we continue our advancement towards divinity or transcendence, whatever that next stage in, in evolution is. But let's, let's take a moment and focus on how. So what exactly happened with how? Did he come up with the lie that the machinery was faulty to put in motion the events that would kill the crew? You know, is how supposed to be perfect, uh, but then he exists with this contradiction where he's supposed to lie to for the sake of the mission. Hmm. You know, he's he's being told to you know complete the mission, but also don't tell the crew about it. And does that deception break him, or did he actually make a mistake? Does he discover he has a flaw, and that realization of his own imperfection becomes his undoing? I think. If that's what that's probably the one that I would go with that that like I think there's multiple ways to interpret it, but I think it's interesting to think about Hal, who has it in his own programming that he is perfect, discovering that he's flawed, and that is what makes him human. It's it's this moment where Hal goes from being AI or whatever to uh you know becoming just like his creator, and I'm that, just like you, Dad. Exactly. I'm just like you, and that's where human technology journey comes full circle apes discover technology or invent technology and then apes become human and then humans create ai and advance that ai to the point where it becomes human too oh that's good i like that i like that a lot um i was thinking about how in in our current ai systems we have like chat gpt and all of those uh image generator things 
And I, I was thinking about how I was thinking specifically about um, this one line from Dave when he's on the interview talking about how. In talking to the computer, one gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. For example, when I asked him about his abilities, I sensed a certain pride in his answer about his accuracy and perfection. Do you believe that Hal has genuine emotions? Well, he acts like he has genuine emotions. Um, of course, he's programmed that way to make it easier for us to talk to him. But as to whether or not he has real feelings is something I don't think anyone can truthfully answer. I like this answer a lot. I think it's very interesting um, because this is the problem of consciousness, right? It, we can't know for sure if Hal is actually intelligent in the way that we uh, define intelligence, right? Or consciousness, I think is probably the better term. Um, it's really hard for us to know for sure if anything is intelligent, right? This is like the, this is kind of the trick of the Turing test, right? Alan Turing recognized that it wasn't as important to know if something was intelligent as much if, as if it seemed intelligent. So, um, obviously, the Turing test has sort of been broken and kind of passed in many different iterations uh, over the years. But this uh, idea of what is consciousness and what, what does it mean or, or like is something conscious is right at the heart of how and his, his arc or his story in this, in this movie. Because it's sort of, I don't know if it really matters, but it sort of matters whether or not he is conscious. Because if he is, then perhaps he did this on purpose, right? And if he isn't, then who's at fault here? Is it the programmers, right? Right. Because who if who you killed the other astronauts? Right. And uh, I, think, I think that maybe this is a, you know, a legal argument one way or the other. Some, so it comes down to some whether an Oxford comma is used in the right <laughs> place or not. But I think that uh, you could make the same argument about humans. You could say that people do bad things. People act, have manic episodes, maybe kill people that they're supposed to care about because they have some sort of chemical imbalance, right? And you could say the same thing about how that he had some sort of code problem. And so who's really responsible, right? But we treat people with chemical imbalances as responsible for their actions, <laughs> right? If you murder someone and you're like, I had a manic episode, that doesn't matter. Straight to right? jail. <laughs> you're, you're, you're still a danger, right. you know? So that's... Other people have manic episodes and don't kill people. So obviously there's a little more going on here. <laughs> the, the, but Hal is sort of in this cross section here, which I think is what's so interesting. And I think that our what we keep running into is we keep having so much trouble defining consciousness. There's this problem with AI, like describing AI, that I think is unique to AI as a tool or as a technology. I don't know of any other technology that has this problem, which is that the goalposts just constantly keep moving about whether or not this thing is alive or not, right? We keep saying, oh, if we do this, if it does this, then it is conscious, right? And we build something that can do that. And then we're like, no, it's actually only predicting text very well, right? <laughs> it's not actually conscious. conscious. And I agree with that. I agree that the stuff that we have now is not conscious. I don't believe it has any sort of inner life or will. But all this means is that we have no idea how to define consciousness. We don't know what it is. And every time we get a little closer to making something that's more like us, we keep realizing that we're, we still don't know what it is. We still don't know how to define it. And we still don't know how to... Uh, make it ourselves so right well i think you're what you said earlier is right we 
we just need to ask ourselves if we can even tell that each other are conscious. And we can't. Right. That, that's yeah. where it really gets that's, to. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> like, maybe you, listener, are the only person. That's and everyone right. else is some sort of philosophical zombie that's running some sort of elaborate dialogue tree or script, right? There's no way to know that for sure, right? Well, one way to know for sure is that you're listening to Affable Chat. You know, studies show that if you're listening to Affable Chat, there's a higher likelihood that you are real uh, than other right, people, right? Course. So you, listener, are definitely doing what you can to, you know, give reassure yourself that you are real. Uh, but no, that's, that's how I feel. You know, it's like I, there's no... We can't even tell if other humans are conscious. How can we possibly define that for some machine? Right, which I mean, just speaks to the difficulty of this question, and I, I think that the uh, Hal as an entity is very interesting for for many reasons. Part of the one of the most haunting parts of this movie is when he begs for his life. Um, <laughs> Dave is uh, unplugging all of his, you know, pulling out all the hard drives or whatever, and Hal's voice is slowing down, and then he's like, starts to like, he starts, to <laughs> he starts doing this. He starts doing like this memory exercise where he's like introducing himself, which is, I think, something that you do for people that have like dementia is like constantly like try to establish some sort of anchor about like who they are. Um, so this is, I mean, it's really spooky. And then he starts to sing. Yeah, he starts singing as well. Um, and this all feels very human, right? That's what be, like up to this point, you don't trust Hal. Hal's killing people, right? Something's wrong with him. But Dave coldly pulling out, you know, those things feels way more like uh, way colder than than how sitting there like, Dave, please stop bargaining. Right. Right. Saying, I, you know, I won't do it anymore. I'm better now. I swear. Creepy as hell. Definitely. And, well, it was one of those things where when you're watching it, you're kind of shifting from what I felt was terror, this homicidal you know ai is killing everybody and now we're finally stopping him but it doesn't have the same feeling as like when you kill the monster in the slasher movie it's like shifting from terror to almost sympathy uh you know something where you're 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 squeezing the life out of something that goes from being uh you know a a monster to being a a little child or like a like a i don't know a youngling to some degree yes younglings (laughs) (laughs) defenseless um yeah i I completely agree uh and that's like the that's what makes Hal such an interesting character i think i I, he's very much it's possible that he is um simply freaking out uh, simply uh trying to preserve his own life and then he thinks that killing the rest of the crew is going to do that but and then you know when dave is pulling out the hard drives i'm like yeah, Dave, definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. then like it becomes it becomes a harder decision. It becomes more uh like uh tumultuous emotionally as it goes on. He's an interesting guy, Hal. And Hal. Uh, you know, he's also really infamous as far as uh you know, movie villains go, but definitely. he's a, he's not so straightforward. Let's go to our cool Easter eggs. All right. Well, uh, I think you've got the first one. The first one is Arthur C. Clarke uh, helped write this movie. Um, the original idea was that. So, okay, let me start at the beginning. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick said, "I wanted to build, I wanted to make a sci-fi movie, but I wanted to be a little different than like the you know kind of typical like aliens come to Earth and like start shooting people kind of thing. I wanted to be a little more." Um, 
uh, you know, abstract. I want it to be a little more hopeful. I wanted to kind of talk about humanity and our relationship with, with the world and evolution. And so he got in touch with Arthur C. Clarke, who is a famous science fiction writer, and asked him to help him write this movie. So Arthur C. Clarke gave him a bunch of short stories, and ultimately they decided on one, and they ended up writing um, the movie and the sort of, it's not exactly a novelization, but a, a, a novel that was based on the same premise um, at the same time. And they were going to say... Uh, Screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke and novel by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, like kind of giving each other credence, but also recognizing that the one was more prominent in each of their fields. Right, right. Um, ultimately, I don't think that's, that's not exactly what happened. Uh, eventually, they, they decided that they were going to you know, collaborate on this uh, uh, you know, over a long period of time, and they ended up writing the story and rewriting the story and having to change things. Like originally, the story said that it was going, they're going to Saturn, but then they had trouble rendering the rings. So they're like, Jupiter's just as good, so we'll do Jupiter <laughs> instead. Um, so, and then uh, Hal used to be was called Athena, but then they changed it to um, like it had a female voice and decided to change that back to uh, a male voice. Um, and yeah, that, that all so all of that. So Arthur C. Clarke, famous science fiction writer, involved heavily in the writing of this movie. Which was uh, very interesting. Yeah, he's. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's an interesting thing to be. Uh, we talked about adaptation earlier this year, and to see kind of the transformation of an idea from uh, the written word into what you see on screen, and it's kind of hard for me to imagine. You know what the heck this book is? Then <laughs> orchestral music for a really long well, time. The, <laughs> Rotating spaceship. Kubrick is way more uh, visual, and Clark is way more um, philosophical. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, uh, he's more explicit about what the story's about. He has more of a connection. There's more of kind of, I think there's more of an ending, actually. Gotcha, gotcha. This one, Kubrick was like, I'm, you know, I'm cutting out a lot of it. He compared this to the Mona Lisa. He's like, I don't think the, the Mona Lisa is um, enhanced if Leonardo wrote at the bottom, she's smiling because she has bad teeth. <laughs> Or you know, she's hiding her smile because she has bad teeth. So he's like, I- I'm leaving that up to the audience, <laughs> right? And I- I'm going to provide the visuals and you provide the imagination. So Interesting. So, um, well, I have an Easter egg that's si- similarly related. Uh, at the premiere screening of this film, 241 people walked out of the theater, including famous actor Rock Hudson. Um, and he said, will someone tell me what the hell this is about? And he probably said it in like a, well, someone, well, someone tell me. He's like on a fifties, like old timey. Yeah, give it to act. us. Give it to us. What's your fifth? Give us. Well, your someone 50s tell rock me what the hell this is about. I don't know. I don't know what Rock <laughs> Hudson sounds like. But Sir Arthur C. Clarke once said, "If you understand two thousand one completely, we failed. We wanted to raise far more questions than we answered." Clarke later expressed some concern that the film was too hard to follow and explained things more fully in the novelization, like we discussed. Uh, and uh, in subsequent sequels as well. The 2001 does have a sequel. I think it's like 2010. 2010. Yeah. Yeah. So. I watched it um, on the with my family on uh, uh, the eve of 2010. Well, like the, oh, nice. January 1st, 2010, because it was on Turner Classic Music Movies. I remember, and I asked my dad about that. Like, Do you remember when we watched that? And he said, yeah, I remember you hated it. <laughs> 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 like, sounds about right. <laughs> um, 
All right, another one. The HAL 9000 computer started out as a mobile robot, but as Arthur C. Clarke feared that this, his view of artificial intelligence would become hopelessly outdated in the coming decades, the omnipresent red eye was conceived. I think this was a good call. This was uh, kind of a genius move. If if HAL 9000 existed as like a uh, AI that you could ask questions to on the internet for free, and you had asked it, should I make HAL 9000 into a mobile robot, it would have a good one would have told you no you know (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny what kind of mobile robot is it is it like a little it's like a guy that walks around or is it or is it like a handheld device i guess i would have thought no i would have thought something like from interstellar that robot yeah yeah. uh, like is like a box cars yeah 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 which uh, was really awesome i'm glad they waited for like the movie technology to catch up before (laughs) attempting that all right. Uh, according to uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, Stanley Kubrick wanted to get an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London to protect himself against losses in the event that extraterrestrial intelligence were discovered before the movie was released. Lloyd's refused. Carl Sagan commented in the mid 1960s there was no search being performed for extraterrestrial intelligence and the chances of accidentally stumbling on extraterrestrial intelligence in a few years period was extremely small. Lloyds of London missed a good bet. So you know, <laughs> you know things were different back then. Where, yeah, when they're like, like we're on yeah, the- this, is opti- this is optimism to a new level, yeah. right? Where you're like, aliens are right around the corner. I mean, this is like, this is what I think it's like <laughs> right after Jesus died, you know? Right, and all right. the apostles are like, he's coming back any day now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not even going to put this money in the bank because he's coming back tomorrow. Right. So. <laughs> it's like, hey, if there's aliens, I want my money back. No chance, buddy. That is way <laughs> too likely to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, Carl Sagan was consulted briefly on this movie as well. Um, he was. Uh, they asked him about his interpretation of what extraterrestrials might look like because extraterrestrials were a large part of the original plot. Um, but ultimately he said, uh, anything that you do is going to look wrong because we don't have no idea what they look like. And we don't even know what they're based on. What they look like, what they look like, you know, sentient, uh, clouds of gas, right? Like the, there's, there's no way we would even know anything about them. So, uh, ultimately there are no extraterrestrials in the movie, even though there was, extraterrestrial designs mocked up there was plans to do that but it is ultimately kubrick didn't like any of them enough to put them in the movie um and kubrick uh, and sagan said oh i'm glad that they took my advice but ultimately uh i, I think they determined that uh that was not the case <laughs> it was a coincidence that uh that they, they went with what sagan said so um one of the inspirations for this movie was a national film board of canada's uh, animation movie called uh, it was a documentary called Universe and it was narrated by Douglas Rain who is the voice of Hal so cool um, they saw this movie said this is what we want to do and the guy who's doing the narration we want him in the movie as well pretty cool Kier Dulia the guy who plays uh, David Bowman he uh, was interviewed about this movie in 2014 he said not one foot of this film was made with computer-generated special effects. Everything you see in this film or saw in this film was done physically or chemically, one way or another, Um, which is very impressive. Very cool stuff. Even all the like strange visuals that you see at the end when he's going through the Stargate or whatever you want to call it, that's all done uh, practically. The cameras are are filming that. 
pretty amazing stuff. Practical effects. They even though it's getting closer to winter, it's still the summer of practical effects for. It's always gonna be summer uh, when it's when practical effects are in season. Yeah, eternal Um, summer of the practical (laughs) effects. (laughs) (laughs) Um. A lot of different, a lot of interesting things were done uh, to film this movie. One of them is motion control. Uh, so this is a technology where the camera position is tied to the miniature position. So essentially, what this, how this works is, um, it's sort of like a, f- a form of stop motion, but like a little bit more advanced. So the idea is like, imagine you have the spaceship and it's on some like a little miniature spaceship. And it's on a pole of some kind, right? And the spaceship is moving across the camera, right? You want to film this multiple times from the same angle, um, you know, to make sure you have all the lighting correct and make sure you have all the effects that you need. Um, And you have to make sure that the mat is correct, right? So the background has to be exactly right so you can paste over it or, or cut it out or whatever. So what you do is you set up this device, this motion control device, so that at, when this thing moves across the camera, it, it's moving with a mechanical device that moves in the exact same way every single time. So it's not just some guy pushing it. It's like set up in a way where you just, you know, you rotate the little gears and the thing moves across the camera in the exact same way. And the other thing you can do is you can put the camera on one of those same devices. So the camera can move in the exact same way every single time while things in the set are also moving. It's very cool. It's very cool to watch. Captain Disillusion has a great video about this kind of technology when he's talking about um, Back to the Future, if you ever want to check that out. There's also huge rotating sets. We talked about this a little bit already, but the uh, the sequences where Dave is running around the spaceship or when um, the, the stewardess is you know walking up the wall all happened in real life, she was actually <laughs> walking up a wall that was spinning as she was moving. Dave was running around a space station that was a, a room that was spinning that he was able to move around. Amazing, a really, uh, really cool stuff. I'm glad they showed that off in so many different angles and so many different ways. Um, uh, it looks, it looks so cool, and it's like even watching it and knowing how they do it, it's still so impressive. You know, I was like watching this woman like take tiny steps. And she's like walking up the wall. It's like, you got to be freaking out a little bit, right? Like, <laughs> like you can't just walk up a wall normally. It's, one of the, it's again, one of those things where it almost becomes cooler when you know how it works. Because you're like, that is insane that they're able to build a, a set that moves so smoothly and just I rotates know. like that. So it's, it's in, totally imperceptible. It's really cool. Well, I've got one more cool Easter egg for you. And uh, it goes like this. The, this film is notable for its innovative use of classical music taken from existing commercial recordings. Most feature films then and now are typically accompanied by elaborate film scores or songs written specifically for them by professional composers. In the early stages of production, Kubrick commissioned a score for 2001 from Hollywood composer Alex North, who had written the score for Spartacus and also had worked on Dr. Strangelove. During post-production, Kubrick chose to abandon North's music in favor of the now familiar classical pieces he had earlier chosen as temporary music for the film. North did not learn that his score had been abandoned until he saw the film's premiere. Talk about yeah. getting snubbed. It's, what a way to find out, right? Especially, he's like, oh, well, this movie's going to suck anyways. <laughs> it's not going to be a, a huge cultural landmark for decades. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, that's why I had to shout out, you know, Alex North, uh, you know, for uh, all the work he he did. All, all it was never unappreciated work. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, that is our last cool Easter egg, and that's going to bring us to the end of our discussion on 2001: A Space Odyssey. As we do at the end of every episode of Affable Chat, we will now deliver our ratings, and I'm going to go first. I give this movie a shell that is shaped like a cone in a way that amplifies sound allowing the apes to invent the first podcast. You know, <laughs> they just start ha- hooting and hollering through that. You know, there's really no difference between that and most podcasts. Uh, hooting and hollering? Yeah, uh, just, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. <laughs> through, the, through their shell, and they just pass it to their friend who is like an expert on uh, making money off of <laughs> smashed bone bits. <laughs> yeah 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 smash bone bits buy buy into my smash bone bit business um and i totally won't uh shirk you that's right um i totally won't scam you i, I thought you were going to say this i thought you were going to make this joke when you said apes discover technology become human humans create ai so advanced that it becomes humans as well and then ai creates podcasts <laughs> uh, my rating is a uh, one really good meal of actual food mm. So I don't, right. I don't have to slurp it through a straw? Not unless you want to. I noticed that the food they had on the Discovery 1 looked slightly better than the, you know, It's come a cartons. long way in 18 months. <laughs> yeah. They were, it was paste that they were scraping up with a fork yeah. instead of Well, the brown one seemed a little more solid. It seemed like that might have been actual meat uh, because that one seemed like it was a little harder to scrape through. Right, uh, right. So there seemed the consistency there. And it was also eaten first, so that makes sense <laughs> in terms of like food order in my mind. Well, there's one thing I'm certain about. It made me hungry. You know, appetizing <laughs> space food. Mm, mm, mm. Space food. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we are doing Black Klansmen. With a guest. If, if all things go right hopefully yeah if you, all the stars align you, if all the celestial bodies line up perfectly and the monolith appears that's right we just like the eternal human spirit we're always able to deliver on our promises of what we're doing next on this podcast <laughs> we're never wrong about that we never, we never lie we've, what's, what's amazing is that we actually plan out the whole year and yet we still run into this problem <laughs> so surely black clansman is next surely Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. AffableChat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social media accounts, including our Instagram and YouTube, and even our email address, AffableChat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. All you have to say is, traveling on a spaceship to the edge of space and time? Have you considered listening to Affable Chat on the way? <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, <laughs> I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.